Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, May 23rd, 2014. All right, today's going to be a slightly different format again. Interview coming up here in a minute. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and do the comparison work to see if what's being said actually squares with what God's Word says in context, so that we're not schnookered or bamboozled. All right, yesterday was a big day, obviously, here at Fighting for the Faith. Yesterday, I interviewed uh, telling uh, Chavidjian regarding whether or not he's an antinomian, and of course, the uh, Twitterverse and the uh, blogosphere and the Facebook world and social media have blown up, and uh, a lot of people are talking about it. Now, what I wanted to do today was tie up a couple of loose ends, and uh, let's, let's talk about what needs to be tied up as far as the loose ends are concerned. Um, number one, Carl Truman responded to the interview, and it, his response, I hate to say it this way, his response made me wonder if he actually listened to the interview. But uh, Truman defended his uh, blog post regarding practical questions uh, by pointing out that apparently questions are not capable of making assertions. And so I wanted to actually read to you my response to Carl Truman. And then what we're going to do is we're going to get right into the program. Uh, first hour, I've, uh, I have Jordan Cooper, Pastor Jordan Cooper, on. And he is also the host of a, a program here on Pirate Christian Radio called Justin Sinner. And... Um, he and I are going to talk about what I consider to be ground zero regarding these theological assertions and claims that uh, Tully and Chavidjian is an antinomian. And that's a book written by a gentleman by the name of uh, Mark Jones. 
and uh, his book on antinomian, it's antinomianism, a reformed theology's unwelcome guest, I think is the subtitle of the book. And, um, you know, I've read the book and I got to say, I am deeply disturbed, number one, by the content of the book, which flat out, you know, argues that uh, good works are necessary for salvation, no joke. Um, and my concern is why aren't people in the Reformed camp uh, challenging Mark Jones's theology? And so I invited uh, Jordan Cooper to come on the program to discuss, uh, you know, what's in Mark Jones's book and, you know, provide, uh, if you would, some analysis on that and uh, provide a little bit of a challenge. Now, uh, now, like I said, Carl Truman, who, who, by the way, I have the deepest respect for, and what I'm about to say actually doesn't change my respect for uh, Carl Truman. And you're thinking, well, why doesn't it? Well, it's, it's real simple because I know something about Carl Truman that I think all of you all should already know. And that is, is that Carl Truman, like me, is a human being. And uh, that being the case, he, like me, has a sinful nature. And so when I saw his response last night on his blog to uh, Tullian's interview, got to tell you, I was disappointed in him. But that doesn't change the fact that Carl Truman is an excellent Christian scholar and somebody who many of us have much that we can learn from. So, um, you know, I took the time to respond to his response, and I wanted to read to you my response and let you know that uh, although it seems like, you know, here's Chris Roseborough, who's he, um, taking on Carl Truman, and everybody knows who Carl Truman is. I mean, how dare you take on somebody of his stature? And all. Yeah, I, get, I understand that. And no, I'm not going to sit there and say, well, it's just like David and Goliath. No, <laughs> it's not like that at all. Um, this is just... I'm telling you how I see it. So um, let me read to you uh, my response, which you can find, by the way, at fightingforthefaith.com. I, it's uh, posted in the main portion of the website you know, uh, with today's date on it, May 23rd, 2014. Um, here's what I wrote. Carl Truman took a few minutes on his blog last night to respond in part to Tullian's interview on Fighting for the Faith. In his post, Truman defends his practical questions post and denies that it was slanderous. The reason that Truman puts forward as to why his post wasn't slanderous is that it was, quote, made up of mainly questions, says Truman. Quote, questions can certainly be loaded and problematic, as in when did you stop beating your wife, but it's difficult for them to be slanderous or to break the Ninth Commandment. Slander and lies involve false assertions. To state the obvious, questions are not assertions. Now, I would remind Dr. Truman that loaded questions are far more than problematic. They do, in fact, make tacit assertions. For instance, the question, when did you stop beating your wife, tacitly asserts that the person who is being asked the question is, in fact, a wife beater. If the person being asked such a question protests and says, how dare you say that I'm a wife beater, the person who asked the question will not be able to plausibly deny that they were making a tacit assertion by saying, I was only asking a question. Uh, the person asking such a question knows full well that the question itself not only assumed, but tacitly asserted the charges of wife beating. In this same way, Truman's questions were not mere questions. They were, in fact, 
loaded questions that were making tacit assertions. What they were tacitly asserting egregiously misrepresented Tullian's theology. As Tullian himself pointed out during the interview, he doesn't speak one word, that being grace, but he speaks two words, law and grace. This is not a new development in his theology, nor is this fact missing in his books, sermons, or conference lectures. Truman knows this, but... His questions, by omitting the fact that Tullian speaks law before he speaks grace, tacitly asserted that Tullian only speaks grace and created the false perception that Tullian and radical gracers who share his theology would somehow find themselves in a theological quandary when providing pastoral counseling to parishioners who wrestle with besetting sins. The Post, from beginning to end, through Tullian's theology, on the horns of a false dilemma by omitting the very real fact that Tullian is not merely a gospel preacher. He's a law-then-gospel preacher. In short, I stand by the statements made by Tullian and myself in yesterday's interview regarding the slanderous nature of Truman's loaded questions. I think that just about says it all. My hope is that uh, Truman considers what I says and acts appropriately. All right. Next segment. Like I said, we, uh, you know, I, doing the research on what's going on out there regarding Tully and Chavigian, Ground Zero is a book written by Mark Jones uh, on antinomianism. And so here is my interview recorded earlier today with Pastor Jordan Cooper. Uh, regarding uh, Mark Jones's book, Antinomianism, uh, Reformed Theology's Unwelcome Guest. Here we go. All right, on the line, I have Pastor Jordan Cooper. He is the pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Brighton, Iowa, and he's also the host of the Just and Sinner podcast, which also airs here at Pirate Christian Radio. Pastor Cooper, thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Chris. Okay, so I'm doing a little bit of, um, if you would, kind of a debrief on what is going on out there regarding the big debate uh, regarding antinomianism and Tully and Chavigian and, and things of that nature. And as I swim upstream in all of the articles, um, I come to uh, what I believe to be kind of like uh, ground zero, if you would, for all of this controversy, and it's the book by Mark Jones – on antinomianism, you know, kind of the unwelcome guest of Reformed theology. And, uh, you know, I know you've uh, read the book and you've critiqued it on your program, and I've invited you on to talk about what it is that Mark Jones talks about in his book. And as I've read through his book now and completed it, the one thing I am absolutely convinced about is that uh, Mark Jones is arguing that good works are necessary for salvation. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, Mark Jones, I mean, he pretty clearly says that. Uh, there's not really a debate. He, says, he, he defends that phrase specifically, and he cites certain uh, Reformed writers that would say, uh, would not use that phrase, and he cites those that would, and, and he argues that it is indeed a good and right phrase that we should be using. Okay, now let me ask you, I have never been a Calvinist, okay? Like not even for a second. So, um, you know, I'm like one and a half point Calvinist. So, you know, I, I kind of fail on the tulip test. But in my cursory look at like the Westminster Confessions of, of Faith, the uh, the Canons of Dort, I could not find 
any confessional statements that are Calvinistic confessional statements that have the statement, good works are necessary for salvation. Am I missing something? No, you're you're right when you're talking about the the standard Reformed confessions. Now, I don't know about some little Reformed confession that was used in some small corner of the world that, that nobody uses anymore. Uh, you might be able to find something like that. But but in terms of the, the confessional statements of contemporary Reformed church bodies, which use either the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, or they use the Three Forms of Unity, uh-huh. uh, no, neither of those confessional documents would have any kind of statement uh, that says anything about good works being necessary for salvation. I mean, yes, they'll talk plenty about good works and the importance of good works and the reality of sanctification, right? Um, but you'll never find that phrase. Okay, so uh, th- there are no that you're aware of, at least you know, within the main body of the Reformed and Calvinistic camps. There's there's not a, you know, there's not a group of pastors who confessionally are bound to say that good works are necessary for salvation. No, there aren't, and I, I think that's pretty clear, even in the fact that this was a debate. This was a debate among among people who held to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh huh. Um, and obviously, if the Confession of Faith itself said this, then the debate wouldn't exist because you wouldn't be able to to really debate the issue because everybody would have to then affirm it. Right. Now, as I read his book, it was very clear that Chapter Five of his book, which is talking about the necessity of good works for salvation, that this was one of the major arguments that he was using to set up the distinction between orthodoxy, reformed orthodoxy, and antinomianism. And he, in later chapters, then uses this distinction as, you know, as kind of the canon by which he measures other people to see whether or not they're antinomian or not. Is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah, I think he does. You know, it, it's really hard to pin down an exact definition of antinomianism uh, in this book. I mean, he, he cites different ideas that he thinks are antinomian, mm-hmm. um, but he never explicitly states, if you believe this view, you are an antinomian, or if you believe these two views, you are an antinomian. But, you know, I, I can't help but get that impression that here, uh, in this chapter, he's saying that if you don't affirm the statement, you are an antinomian. Now, right. he doesn't come right out and say that, but but the way that he argues seems to... It seems to assume that to be the case. So it's more of an implicit argument than an explicit statement on his part. I mean, because, you know, as the way the logical argument that he's putting forward here unfolds, I mean, he spends an entire chapter arguing that good works are necessary for salvation, and he's contradistincting what he's saying against antinomians who can't say that or won't say that. Yeah, exactly. And he's been he's been asked point blank about that do you say that everyone who will not affirm that phrase is an antinomian? And I, and I don't think he's actually given a direct answer to that question, uh, because as I'm sure we're going to talk about, our, our confessions as Lutherans specifically reject that phrase. Right. Uh, so as both of us being Lutheran pastors, we have taken, taken a vow uh, to teach according to our confession, so we are bound to say that that phrase is an error. Right. Now, before we get to that, though, I, I, I wanted to, in, the, in Chapter 5, um, he actually gives like a series of, you know, how many are there? 13 different reasons why good works are necessary for salvation. And he uses his, his, his source here a guy by the name of Anthony Burgess. I mean, I, I, listen, okay, when I study 
you know, when I read, you know, reformed theological works, oftentimes I feel like I'm reading a book about like British history. Okay. When I was in college, I had to take several courses on British history and I got to admit, I was a little bit lost at times. Okay. I didn't know the geography. And then you find out that this King or that Prince was fighting with this person in that place over this thing. And it led to a war that lasted for like ever. And then you, you know, I'm reading these things and I, I mentally don't have anything to connect it to it's like reading you know if if it, it might as well have happened on mars you know what i'm saying yeah. uh, and so as i'm reading this i mean i'm not completely oblivious to reformed thinkers but at the same time i'm not very well versed in them but anthony burgess i've never heard of this guy I, until i you know picked up this book and started reading it this was somebody who i have never heard of is is anthony burgess a major thinker in reformed theology uh no he, he's not a major thinker that anyone really uses too much i mean he, he's occasionally referenced um he he is one of the puritans uh he in jones in this book he uses a lot of burgess he uses uh Maastricht, and he uses um uh Davenant, and he uses a, a couple others but He's pretty limited in the Puritans he's actually using because the, the Puritan tradition is a pretty broad theological tradition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, scholars who study Puritans can't even actually agree on what makes someone a Puritan. Um, so, so nobody really knows exactly how to define even what a Puritan is. And so you're going to find all different views within the camp that is Puritanism, which is, which in and of itself is only one branch of the Reformed tradition. Okay. And so what he's doing is taking certain figures within that broad part of the Reformed tradition, and then saying that this one kind of theology then defines the entire Reformed tradition, uh, which is just not the, the right way to do it. I mean, I, I think he's accurately quoting Burgess. Um, you know, I, I think he, his scholarship in terms of Maastricht and Burgess is, is accurate. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that they were right, and that doesn't mean they represent the Reformed tradition. I mean, today it's not like people are talking all about, you know, Anthony Burgess all the time. I mean, <laughs> you know, the more famous Puritans like, uh, you know, John Owen, of course, is, is mm -hmm. one of the big names, or, uh, you know, the American Puritan, Jonathan Edwards, are probably the, the two most popular. And you hear about all sorts of others, too, but, but the ones that are cited here aren't the ones that have much influence in the contemporary church. Okay. Um, it, it, if I could read, you know, since he brought up that, you know, that list, this is, this is the one point in that list that I think is, is very troubling. Um, and this is point five, uh, where he says, good works are a condition without which a man cannot be saved, so that although a man cannot by the presence of them gather a cause of his salvation, yet by the absence of them he may conclude his damnation, so that it is an excusable speech of the antinomian who says that good works do not profit us nor bad hinder us. And the problematic word there is the word condition. Mm -hmm. And so good works are a condition by which man can be saved. And so that... I mean, that goes beyond just saying good works are, are a necessary um, aspect of the Christian life. Good works necessarily always flow from faith. Right. They're a sign of faith, that kind of stuff. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that they are actually a condition without which we cannot be saved. Right. You know, now this uh, statement, good works do not profit us, or, uh, you know, that, that actually, there's, there's ties, of, you know, there's, that sounds similar to the same kind of antinomianism that, uh, the Lutheran tradition experienced not too uh, far into its tradition, and and Luther actually addressed several statements of that uh, of this type. You know, basically saying that good works uh, hinder uh, salvation or things like that. 
Um, walk us through a little bit of, you know, you know, we Lutherans in our history and our tradition, we've dealt with antinomianism and we, we ain't antinomians, at least not confessionally. Um, you know, walk us through, you know, you know, you know, what was Luther's experience early on with like Agricola? How did that unfold? And then talk, we can talk a little bit about the majoristic controversy and, um, and how specifically, uh, the statement "good works are necessary for salvation" were were condemned as error in uh, the formula of Concord. Yeah, sure. And, and just before getting into that specifically, you know, Lutherans, we would not affirm the statement there that good works do not profit us nor bad hinder us. Um, and that does kind of sound like some of the things that the antinomians were saying, but we don't give the same answer to then say, well, that statement's false, so therefore they're conditioned by which we're saved. Um, and, and yeah, Luther did uh, deal with antinomianism, and I, I think it's important to define antinomianism uh, because it is Luther himself who defined antinomianism as the as an error, mm-hmm. and then attacked that. So people who accuse you know Luther or Lutherans of being antinomian is just kind of silly because we coined the phrase in the first place to attack an idea we disagree with. Right. Um, yeah, and, and Agricola, uh, his argument was that the law is essentially for just for the civil realm. Uh, and so the law is for the law courts. You know, the law doesn't really have a place in the church. It doesn't really have a place for, for Christians. Uh, and so he would believe in what Lutherans have called the first use, what the Reformers have called the second use of the law, which is the civil use of the law. Mm-hmm. But he rejected the other two. And so he said, basically, the law belongs in the law courts, so it doesn't belong in the church. Wow. And so Agricola would say that we don't need to preach the law at all. I mean, we're not just talking about no third use of the law. We're talking about no law at all uh, in the church. And so you don't preach the law to condemn sin. Uh, you just preach the gospel. Uh, and that's real antinomianism. I mean, if you want to get real antinomianism, you have to look at these people who actually reject the law altogether. Right. Uh, like someone like, like a Joseph Prince, for example, says that, that the law is totally done away with uh, in the New Covenant, and now it has no place whatsoever in mm-hmm. the to preach law ever. Right. Uh, that's antinomianism. Yeah, or we call them, you know, there's another phrase we refer to them as gospel reductionists. Yeah. You know, that's that that you know, that's another way of describing kind of the same phenomena. You know, my my uh my New York Times best-selling Pastrix friend is a gospel reductionist or antinomian. And, you know, and she makes no bones about it, you know. <laughs> it's like okay, so I mean, if we're going to we're going to correctly identify who an antinomian is, you know, it's important that we pay close attention to definitions and details and look for those, for that actual theology out into the wild. You know, you know, we can look at, across the theological landscape and we can come up with examples of what a real antinomian is. Okay, so, um, yeah, and that's the thing that's weird for me is, you know, to see somebody like uh, Telian Chavidjian uh, labeled an antinomian because he doesn't, you know, his theology in his books about God's radical grace, and this is kind of something I want to talk about here, is um, that it doesn't, you know, it, it, it doesn't fit with the theological construct that Mark Jones came up with on his book, which heavily uses Anthony Burgess. It, you, know, just, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Because if, if, if we're going to be blunt, I mean, if you know, chapter five of, uh, of Mark Jones's book, if... If I have to confess that works are necessary for salvation, since I can't confessionally and biblically, 
That means by definition, I'm an antinomian. You're an antinomian. Anybody who disagrees with that statement is an antinomian by the definition that Mark Jones has set up. Am I overstating that? No, I mean, that's the impression when I got this, uh, you know, when I read it was basically he's, he, by his definition, all confessing, confessing Lutherans would be antinomian. Uh, and that's a, that's a question that I, I asked him myself, and he didn't really he wouldn't give me an answer. He just said, "Well, my book is not written about Lutheranism, but but I do want to know. I mean, this does have practical implications for us Lutherans if there's a branch of of Christianity that is uh, that is saying that we're heretics and we adopted this heresy. I think we I think it would be the nice thing for them to let us know, <laughs> right? For us to know what that what that is and, and why we're heretics. You know, <laughs> so I, I would like to hear some kind of a clear answer to say our to the question, are Lutherans antinomians? And I haven't really heard a clear answer, but seemingly, according to this book, because two of the major tenets of antinomianism are, one is that they deny the phrase that we explicitly reject, and the other is that we don't look for our salvation, or the evidence for our salvation in our works. We don't look for our assurance in our good work. Right. But he seems to say that it's only the antinomians that would say we look primarily to the objective work of Christ uh, for for assurance of our salvation. Right. Now, means of grace. now in, in, in reading his book, I mean, one of the things I was convinced of, since I, I think he wrongly defines antinomianism, or I should say unspecifically defines it in a way that's kind of implicit rather than explicit, I, maybe that's a good way of putting it, um, that ultimately I didn't think that this book was really about antinomianism. I saw this more or less as a book about the question of how does one know that they're saved? Where do they look for assurance of salvation as somebody who is in the, who is in the Reformed tradition? I, I, that's kind of what I think is the difference that's going on here. And maybe that's at the heart of the criticism by Mark Jones against Tullian Chavigian, because Tullian doesn't point the people in his congregation or the people who read their, his books, he doesn't point them to their progress in sanctification or their good works or increasing holiness as the thing that is what they should be looking for, for assurance of their salvation. He continues to point the eyes of their faith to their crucified, risen, gracious, loving, merciful Savior, which is different than Jones, who makes an entire takes an entire chapter to argue for assurance of salvation based upon works. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I want to just read a couple quotes from the book that, that I think get to to the point that you're making. And he does have a whole chapter on the issue of assurance, and and he has this this syllogism, and he is getting this from from different uh, Puritan or Reformed sources. Um, but here's a syllogism that he starts with when we're talking about assurance. Uh, he says, well, the major premise, those who keep... He's asking the question, how do we know that we love Christ, or how do we know that we're saved? So the major premise is, those who keep God's commandments love Christ. The minor premise is, by the grace of God, I keep God's commandments. Conclusion, I love Christ. And so in other words, what you're asking is, you know, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know I have faith? And how you do that is by looking at how well you keep God's commandments. Uh, and, and so this really is an issue of, of assurance, and I think that is probably at the heart of this, this dispute, is how do we know that we're saved? We, do I have to look continually to my, my works to know that I'm, I'm actually saved? And another quote, he says, The examination of our justification by our sanctification is not only a lawful and possible, but a very excellent and necessary work and duty. Uh, and so he does say that 
we have to be looking at our works and our progress to have assurance that we're saved. Hmm. And that's not pointing me to Jesus. That's pointing me to me. And, you know, some days I'm going to feel really saved and other days I'm going to feel damned. I mean, what, how psychologically is that going to play out uh, to somebody who's uh, a parishioner in a, uh, in a church? Well, I, I mean, that's the most dangerous thing, I think, and that's what leads people out of uh, the Reformed world oftentimes, because the people that do uh, come from this part of the Reformed world uh, that is out there where you are constantly being told that you need to check if you're saved, you need to look at your progress to see if you've really progressed, you need to see if your fruit is really there, if you really love God. I mean, if you're doing that and you're constantly just looking at yourself, you're constantly wondering day by day, uh, am I really progressing? Do I really love God? Uh, do I really love Him enough? And then even if you stop, even if I were to stop and say, well, I've seen the good works that I've done for my neighbor, then I stop and say, well, what was my motivation for doing those good works? Uh, you know, and then you stop and say, well, is my motivation really right? Uh, and then so, so that doesn't work either. And so you're really left in this, you're really left with either one of two options. Either you're going to be in despair or you're going to have to try to convince yourself that you really are pretty good uh, and try to ignore the, the sin that's still there. Now, of course, they're going to say, Yes, you're still a sinner, but you have to see some kind of progress and some kind of good works. But, you know, like you said, it could be that can fluctuate from one day to the next. You know, sometimes you really fall back and you really mess up one day. And so it kind of leaves you then to, to that day say, well, maybe I'm not saved today, and then maybe I'll feel saved tomorrow, and then not the next day. Right. Uh, but it's, it's a dangerous place to be in. Yeah, I mean, you, you just think about the practicality of this. I mean, you know, as a pastor, you know, you might have somebody in your congregation who legitimately is, uh, is struggling with alcoholism. And, you know, during the times when they're clean and sober, are they, should they say, I'm really saved? And what happens if something gets out of control in their life and they succumb to temptation and they go on a two-week-long bender? Should we assume that they're not saved at that point? Well, that's a good question because I've actually I've had friends in that situation uh, who, in fact, you know, had fallen back into um, drinking or drugs because that was something they struggled with before they were converted. Uh, and, and then they come to the conclusion, well, I must just not be saved. And mm. th- at that point, they say, well, what do I do? You know, I'm probably not elect. I'm probably not saved because the fruit's not there right now because I fell into this sin. And then it's a temptation to just say, well, I'll just give up at that point because – you already know the fruit's not really there. Uh, so I think that's, that's a very practical issue, and I, I've, I've seen it work itself out uh, in people who have come under this kind of teaching. Right, and, and, then, and then also, I, I think this also touches on uh, the Reformed view of election. And I, and I understand that there's debates right now regarding the Reformed view of election, and they're talking about particular redemption and trying to find ways to kind of work uh, with this, because I, I I think if psychologically you're always wondering, well, am I really did Jesus's blood really apply to me, or am I a reprobate? You know, um, uh, you you th- that you're <laughs> you're going to be constantly looking at yourself and your good works for some kind of assurance, not just that you're saved, you know, per se, but that Christ's death actually applies to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is. <laughs> This is a problem that you find in Reformed theology that you don't find, you know, in Lutheranism. And I think a lot of it does go back to, to limited atonement and election. And, uh, you know, like you said, there, there, there's a lot of different views on election uh, within the Reformed world, exactly what reprobation means and how active God is in reprobation. There's all sorts of questions about um, 
what limited atonement means, how limited is the atonement, are there any benefits given to the non-elect for the atonement. So, so it is a, a complex issue. But, you know, I, at least when I was when I was reformed, uh, when I was in the reformed world, I, I did have kind of a crisis of faith, thinking about uh, the idea of limited atonement. Uh, and that crisis of faith was was wondering, how do I know that Jesus died for me? And the only way that I knew was if I had faith, because if I'm elect, I have faith, uh, and it's only the elect who have faith. And that sounds well and good, but then I asked myself the question, well, how do I know I have faith? Because this other guy next to me, you know, this guy seems like he had faith, but he actually is no longer a Christian, so maybe he never really had faith, so how do I know my faith is really genuine? And then you get into these kind of, you know, syllogisms like Jones outlines here, where you're constantly just trying to say, well, I have to look at my works to know if I really have faith. And then it ends up being that I am looking primarily at my works to know if Jesus died for me, so mm-hmm. the primary grounds of my faith becomes my works. Okay, so, th- th- I mean, just psychologically, that is going to be a very difficult spot to be in. So let's let's kind of work this out here, you know, using uh, Rich Shields' concepts, you know, that he gets from uh, Dr. Vells regarding first, second, and third level reading. Um, doing a third level reading on um, on Jones's book, it just makes me wonder if the reason why he is so tenaciously arguing that that you know works are necessary for salvation is because without that he does he believes he has no assurance whatsoever that he's actually saved. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I want to get into uh, trying to wonder what the motivations of, of Jones you know, are in writing, in writing the book. Right. Uh, I, I really don't. But, but I mean, I, I'm sure that some people who, who are part of this whole argument who have that, that kind of approach, would that would be the reason. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, what Tullian's doing is not pointing you to your good works. He's pointing you to Christ, constantly pointing you to Christ. And, you know, from that, you know, from the mindset of somebody who's looking to their good works as the definitive proof that they're elect and that they're saved, this is going to actually be a threat uh, to their entire assurance of their of their salvation and something that, you know, that they would actually see ultimately as a threat to the faith itself. Yeah, uh, definitely. They, they do. And, and I think the issue is that, that they when they talk about third use of the law they put it in a very specific context, and they can't see it in another context. Mm-hmm. And so that specific context is the 30th of the law has to be uh, something that I can look at as a means of assurance that, that I'm following God's commands. It has to be something that somehow plays part in my final salvation, uh, how, however you want to parse that out. Um, but when a Lutheran says, you know, yeah, good works are important, we should talk about them, we should do them, but we do them because of the gospel— uh, the gospel is that which gives us the power to do them. We joyfully love and serve our neighbors. Um, they don't understand that context, and they don't understand that the law can ever be placed in that context, or good works can never be placed in that context. So they just kind of block it out and say, well, that's antinomian. You're denying the third use of the law. When you're not at all, you're just placing the third use in a very different context than they are, and they just don't understand, understand right. that. Right. And when you do that, I mean, you know, listen, if you want to have a theological conversation about the third use, its right use, and what its limits are, and things like that. I mean, we can do that as brothers without actually arguing that uh, somebody is an antinomian, right? Well, I'd hope so. <laughs> you know, the, the problem, I think, 
in these discussions is that there's just been so much slander kind of thrown back and forth and and name calling and calling of heresy and and uh I think Rick Phillips recently called uh Selena a false teacher. Uh I, I mean this th- these kinds of accusations are not helping anybody. Um and I think that because all these views I think can be found in the historic reform tradition as I said, you know, Jones is taking one part of the reform tradition which is very broad tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, since they're all coming from this broadly reformed tradition which I think is was supposed to be the point of the Gospel Coalition in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you could discuss the differences within that tradition civilly without throwing around these, you know, throwing around claims of heresy or antinomianism or, or whatever else. Right. Uh, you know, I don't see Tullian running around claiming to be receiving direct revelations from God and chasing after the latest winds of the Spirit and and you know and twisting and butchering god's word and you know taking a verse out of context here and out of context there and and then teaching people you know uh you know the importance of uh, of you know using a day planner or finding their purpose he's he's not that type of teacher at all um you know i i've noticed that uh, his sermons oftentimes are series where he works through entire books of the bible he he does a good job of carefully exegeting tries and I think it succeeds for the most part of properly distinguishing between law and gospel. And, uh, you know, I, you know, truth be told, I'm a Lutheran and, you know, I find his sermons to be edifying, but because he's a Presbyterian, you know, I, I couldn't be a member of his church, but that doesn't mean that, you know, I think he's outside of Christianity. I think it's, I think one of the things that's unfortunate in all of this is that somebody who is, you know, a, a, a decent, good uh, pastor and preacher of, you know, the gospel and rightly handles law and gospel is, uh, is you know, be, a, a difference of opinion regarding the use of the law and its limits and what it can and cannot do does not put him into the category of like a T.D. Jakes or, you know, or, or, you know, a Patricia King or some of these other really far out, you know, uh, Bill Johnson and folks like that. It, I, I don't understand how the vitriol, how the how the rhetoric had has raised and escalated to that point. Yeah, it, it's gotten kind of ridiculous. Um, when people are more distrustful of, of Tullian than they are of T.D. Jakes, which I think is the case of, of, for some of the people in the Gospel Coalition who have defended Jakes as some kind of Trinitarian, supposedly. Um, and it just kind of shows you that... The, the central issue has not anymore become the central issue. You know, people have are now trying to say that, well, Tullian is antinomian, and even though he believes in the third use of the law, even though he um, believes that there's growth and sanctification, um, he doesn't talk about these things enough, or he doesn't emphasize these things enough, or I don't like the way he's exegeted this passage or that passage, and so they then just totally reject him as some kind of antinomian or some kind of heretic. Right. But but I don't think that we, I mean, since when do we declare somebody a heretic based on their theology being imbalanced? Now, imbalance in theology is an important thing to talk about. Yeah. Uh, and that can have practical implications, but you don't call somebody a heretic because you don't think that some of their exegesis is good or you don't think that their theology is as balanced as it should be. Uh-huh. Now, and this is kind of an important thing, okay? Uh, when we talk about balance, because, uh, you know, I had a conversation with somebody on my Facebook wall about this today, and, you know, they were specifically saying, well, in his books, he doesn't do, he's not balanced. And, and he talks about this radical grace thing and, and doesn't ever mention the importance of sanctification. 
And I pointed out the fact that in Tullian's books, uh, you know, Jesus plus nothing equals everything in one way love, Tullian never talks about eschatology. Um, you know, in those books, I mean, he he doesn't sit there and explain whether or not he believes in a rapture, whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, if he's amillennial. He doesn't get into his eschatology. Should I therefore claim that Tullian Chavidian doesn't believe that Jesus is returning and that eschatology has no place in his theology. And because he's denying that Jesus is going to return to judge both the living and the dead, uh, which is, you know, is found right there in the Nicene Creed, that therefore he's, a, he's an eschatological heretic. <laughs> I think that's a, really, that's a really good point to bring up. And that's what I've said to people, too, is that you know, he's, writing to, he's writing specifically to people who have kind of grown up in this in, in legalistic kind of churches. And that book has been very helpful to people who have grown up with that kind of background. Yep. Um, and you don't take a book on a subject and then say, well, he doesn't talk about this other subject that I wanted him to talk about, so therefore he doesn't believe in it. I mean, if, if, he, if he said, uh, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, this is my systematic theology, okay? This is the summary of the Christian faith. Uh, then maybe you could, we could talk about the issues. You know, if, if he has a, a systematic theology that he puts out and he doesn't even have a chapter on sanctification, uh-huh. you know, then you talk about it. But, but when you're writing a book to deal with a specific issue in a specific context, you should expect somebody to deal with everything that you want them to, to talk about. Right. And, and you know, it's like, you know, and the thing is, is that you don't actually have to go far in order to uh, find quote after quote after quote from Tullian in his preaching, his conference speeches, and uh, in other places where he specifically affirms the necessity of good works. I, you know, on my Facebook wall this morning, I, I posted a four-minute long video where in the video, uh, uh, Tullian talks about faith by ne- by definition necessarily produces good works. That's an actual direct quote from Tullian. And the person who had, who had, had alerted me to this video had actually posted it and given it to me as proof that there was something wrong with his theology. And when I pointed out what he said in that, then came the argument, well, it's, it's that he doesn't talk about sanctification enough. He's unbalanced. <laughs> And that's what it comes down to, uh, oftentimes. And, and I did see that comment, and I watched the video. That, that's from his. Um, that's from a message he gave on on two kinds of righteousness, which I would recommend taking a look at because that message deals with the whole message deals with good works. Uh-huh. Good works. I think it's a very good message. Um, but it, that just it, it shows that good works are placed in a different context for him than they are for other people. And I think that's the issue. Uh, is that he says that you know God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor does, which of course is from Luther, uh, and Lutherans use that say, that quote all the time. Yep. Um, but Mark Jones takes issue with that quote, and he says, "Well, Jesus needs your good works." Um, and, and the idea there somehow is that if you say Jesus needs your good works instead of God needs your good works, it's more gospel-centered or Christ-centered, which is kind of a, a strange thing to say. Um, but that that citation. Um, from Luther shows that good works are important, but they're important in a different context. So you're not doing good works so that you know that you're saved. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not doing good works, uh, you know, for the sake of your glorification or something. You're doing good works for the good of the world, for the good of your neighbor, um, for the good of your family, for for just the good of the, the world around you. Um, 
And I think if, if there really was an understanding of that context, what the doctrine of vocation is, what the idea of two kinds of righteousness is, which, which um, is very important to, to Tullian. I know that's a big part of his, of his preaching and, and teaching. They need to understand that, hey, actually, it's all about good works, but they're placed in a different context. Right. That's really the issue. Right. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. When we come back, the balance of my interview with Pastor Jordan Cooper regarding Mark Jones's book on antinomianism. By the way, hour number two, a Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon to end the week off from uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And he addresses the topic of antinomianism and how you ain't preaching the gospel right unless people are bringing charges against you of preaching antinomianism. Mm -hmm. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build a God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your God is male female or unisex men are pigs anyway she has to be female great choice now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess what do you provide do you want her to be kind loving compassionate just angry righteous wrathful the goddess i believe in would only be loving and kind perfect now is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess sin You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful. Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler. Genghis Khan, my good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm. I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's 
featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. All right, we're back. Uh, warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could constantly come supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor is saying that works are necessary for salvation. That's called legalism, by the way. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute. You can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of my interview with Pastor Jordan Cooper regarding Mark Jones's book, Antinomianism, uh, Reformed Theology's Unwelcome Guest. Here we go. This kind of reminded me. I mean, another thing that I found fascinating about Mark Jones's book is uh, in the chapter on the law and the gospel, he he does some kind of definitional um, uh, funny business, okay? And there's an entire section in there called gospel threatenings. I mean, basically, there's apparently threats in the gospel. And I read that, and my I had a hard time because I kept hitting my jaw on my desk as I was reading it. Um, and it, it's not very difficult to see what he was doing in there. And uh, and in my interview with Tullian yesterday, I, I'm, you know, we were talking about the fact that the gospel has a narrow definition as well as a wide definition. And what I f- found fascinating in this chapter is is that in order to get this concept of gospel threatenings, um, he he abandons the narrow definition of gospel that that Tullian's using, um, and, and goes with a broad definition of the word gospel, so that he can work in this category of gospel threatenings. And and at the same time, I think you had you and I had talked about this. He still maintains a narrow definition of law. You know what's going on in this chapter? I mean, what what on earth is a gospel threat? Yeah, you know that. That's a lot of the, the issue when it comes to uh, a lot of the Reformed rejecting the law-gospel distinction. And this, this trend has, it's not new with, with Mark Jones, and he takes up some of the arguments that you already find in some earlier writers. So John Frame um, wrote an article against the Lutheran law-gospel distinction, and specifically it was more in response to, uh, to Michael Horton uh, and some of the, the, the theologians at Westminster Seminary in California. 
Uh, and he uses basically the same arguments. And I, I actually just finished a, a five uh, five hour discussion for five different programs on Frame's article and the problems with it. But you see the the same thing in Jones is that they they kind of acknowledge that there is a narrow and a broad sense to law and gospel, and uh, which is in the Lutheran Confession. So we the Lutheran Confessions say. Well, when we're talking about the distinction between law and gospel, we're talking about the narrow sense of law and the narrow sense of gospel. So law as command, gospel as promise. Right. You know, yeah, essentially that, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the distinction. But our confessions acknowledge, well, hey, Scripture does use the term law in many different ways. So, you know, in Romans 3, Paul can use the term law a couple times in a row, meaning two totally different things when he uses it, you know, one right after the other. Uh, and the term gospel at times can refer to the whole story of salvation. Uh, it can refer to the, the life of Jesus. We have the four gospels. Um, but when we're talking about the distinction between law and gospel, we're talking about something very precise, which is the narrow definition of those two terms. Right. And so what, what you find in Jones, and you find this in Frame's article also, and some of the other work done uh, trying to argue against the Lutheran law gospel distinction is they say, well, I know Lutherans have that distinction, or I know that some people make that distinction, but then they go on to, yeah, work with a narrow definition of law as command, but then they take a broad definition of gospel, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, basically everything that Jesus taught. Uh, and mm -hmm. so then they try to contrast the two and say, see, Jesus talked about commands. See, the, the gospel is tied to commands here, here, here in the New Testament. <laughs> right. So broad definition of gospel, and you smuggle in not only commands, but according to Mark Jones, we now have gospel threatenings, you know? Yes. And that, that actually is a phrase that you find in, in some of the Puritan writers is gospel threatenings, um, which is very confusing and, and unhelpful. <laughs> Right. So if you're, if, if you're going to go with the broad definition of gospel, go with the broad definition of law when you're doing law and gospel. If you're going to go with the, you know, if you're really going to do the right gospel, law gospel distinction that we're talking about as Lutherans that uh, Tullian is actually talking about, it's narrow definition of gospel with the narrow definition of gospel. I mean, law. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and you have to understand exactly what we're saying. And they just don't understand the nuance. Oh, or they're not explaining the nuance that is there when we're talking about law and gospel. So you can't just go to a passage that says... Um, it, it's essentially doing the same thing that the Roman Catholics do when they talk about the book of James. Uh -huh. right? So they say, well, the word justification is the word you use when you say justification by faith. And James uses that word in James 2 and says, you know, justified by works. And so therefore, <laughs> your, your doctrine's wrong because this text says something different. Uh -huh. but, but everyone acknowledges that Different words are used to mean different things, and so when we're doing systematic theology, we're using a very specific term to refer to a specific thing. So when we're talking about justification in systematic theology, we're not talking about what James is talking about. Right. Um, we're talking specifically about Paul's doctrine of justification, and it's the same thing with with law and gospel. Right. And, and plus, I think it helps that you know you, you really understand that what James is doing is he's 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 talking quorum hominibus. He's talking about our righteousness before our neighbor, whereas Paul in uh, Romans and Galatians, he's talking about our justification, uh, quorum deo, before God. I mean... Yeah, well, absolutely, and that goes, gets to the whole two kinds of righteousness discussion, because that's essentially what the doctrine of the two kinds of righteousness is. It says that there's 
uh, righteousness before God, which is passive that we receive by faith. Uh, so we're justified by faith alone. Our works don't play any part in that at all, which is why we can't say that our good works contribute to our glorification or our good works that are measures of our justification. Right. But then we have this other realm that we live in, which is karm uh, homnibus before man. So we then need our good works because our neighbor needs our good works. We, you know, if, if God didn't want us to do good works, he would just take us home as soon as we're, you know, as, as we're justified, as soon as we have faith. But he, he leaves us here so that we can do something good for others around us, for the world around us. Right. Um, and, and that's where James fits in. Right. And and then, you know, the average layperson in, you know, in the pulpit Sunday after Sunday, if they were to hear the phrase, good works are necessary for salvation, they're hearing good works in the category of quorum deo before God. It, it's all of a sudden now works are being smuggled into the, into the justification category uh, between us and God. That's how they're going to hear that statement. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's the issue I have, because when I, when I read through some of his distinctions, and he does distinguish between uh, different kinds of necessity, I'm thinking as a pastor... Well, how would I preach this? You know, how, how would I bring this to my congregation? If I stood in the pulpit and said, "Well, um, good works are a condition of your, uh, are a condition upon which you you will not be saved if you don't have them." Uh, if I use that kind of language and then try to clarify, but it's not meritorious, and your initial justification is not by works. You know, if they're not going to understand anything I just said, right. all they're going to understand is good works, salvation. They are necessary, therefore I'm saved by my works. I mean, that's what they're going to think. So right. Unless you have these very tight, uh, you know, uh, Aristotelian categories of, of necessity, consequence, all these kinds of things. <laughs> right. You're not going to know what, what what the pastor is trying to say, and it's just going to be confusing. So, what is the point in using these kinds of the distinctions? Right. And let me throw another. You know, you know, I have to apologize to the listeners of fighting for the faith here. We got we're, we're using some big. Uh, theological terms, and I, you know, I apologize. You might want to listen with Google open so that you can, you know, Google some of these phrases. Um, but in in uh, Peeper's dogmatics, uh, you know, Peeper makes a point of talking about how within uh, the human heart uh, we have the law written on our, written on our heart, and so that's kind of our default mode. He refers to it as the opinia legis. And um, and so when so- somebody who has the law written on their heart hears salvation uh, works are necessary for salvation, the opinia legis kicks in, and they're immediately kicked back into works righteousness. I I just don't you know that's exactly how as a pastor I know that's how the people in the pulpit are going to hear this. Yeah, no, you're exactly right, uh, and that's that's the question I have. I think it's something that as theologians we need to be very aware of generally because I think. You know, theologians sometimes aren't aren't careful about these things because we don't think, well, how is the average layperson going to understand this? Right. You know, maybe, maybe I understand this because I've read all these books and I have all these kinds of distinctions in my head that I can work with, but how is the average person going to hear it? You know, it, it's kind of like um, how, how Roman Catholicism works. Okay, so if you're a, a Roman Catholic theologian, you know that, that there's these distinctions. So you know, well, there, there's veneration that I give to the saints, and there's worship that I give to God, and they're both different. And when I pray to the saints, I'm not praying in the same way that I'm praying to God. That's a capital P prayer. This is a lowercase p prayer. And you have all these distinctions to try to make yourself sound orthodox, and I understand that if you're a theologian and a priest, you know these distinctions. But the question then is, how does the average person in the parish hear this stuff? Right. You know, where I talk to a Roman Catholic, and they've said to me, yeah, we worship Mary, we pray to Mary, and we worship her. 
you know, they don't understand. <laughs> and so we have to be very, very careful not to do that kind of thing. Right. Right. Plus, Lutherans, uh, you know, have always made a point of we don't do our dogmatics. We don't uh, formulate dogmatics using syllogisms. And and so this is one of the reasons why during the uh, the, the majoristic controversy, um, ultimately the formula of Concord comes down and says we have to reject as an error, as an improper and an error, that uh, the statement that says good works are necessary for salvation due to the fact that, number one, it goes beyond Scripture. Number two... Clear passages contradict the statement. You know, I would, you know, we and we point to Ephesians two eight nine and ten is you know making making it perfectly clear that salvation is by grace alone through a gift, not by our works. And so, a statement like that, even if you're using some kind of syllogism and Aristotelian logic in order to you know formulate the 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 statement and prop it up it has to be rejected because on its face it is directly contradicted by clear passages of scripture yeah that, that's a really good point i mean we have to be careful the way that we use logic when we do our theology uh now, now i think some people hear this and say well you're saying that theology has to be illogical uh, or irrational and has to contradict itself and that's not the case uh, but we have to understand <laughs> that that we don't have uh, you know, we don't have all the information that God does. We don't have the, the same mind that God does. We don't know what he knows. And so we need to ultimately bow before what God says, who is God, what God says and does is logical, but it doesn't seem like it to the human mind. So we can't comprehend it, and we can't understand it. So we can't then base our theology on, well, this point makes sense with this point, and therefore this is the conclusion. Right. Because you'll get in all, all sorts of messes. I mean, that, that's how a lot of heresies start. Uh, I'm tempted to say that's how all heresies start, but it's at least how, how many of them start is with trying to take some kind of a logical position that maybe makes sense, um, and, and then imposing that on Scripture instead of taking our doctrine from Scripture itself. Right, exactly. So what exactly is the Lutheran position, then, regarding uh, the necessity of good works? We've talked about the fact that uh, the uh, formula of Concord Article 4 explicitly denies and says that it's, an, it's improper and an error to state that good works are necessary for salvation. What, then, is the Lutheran view regarding good works? Yeah, the, the Lutheran view regarding good works is just to cut off the end of that statement and just say good works are necessary. Uh, and I know a lot of people get upset because they say, well, necessary for what? What does that mean? Um, but, but our confessions reject specifically the phrase, good works are necessary for salvation. Uh, we say that that's a dangerous kind of statement. It's not helpful. Uh-huh. Uh, and it promotes some kind of works righteousness or legalism. So we just say good works are necessary. And so that means that Christians have to do good works. You know, it's not optional. I don't, uh, you know, it's not like I have faith and I say, you know, do I want to do good works or am I just going to have faith and never do a good work for anybody else? You know, it's not, that's not an option, you know, but Luther says faith is a, is a living, busy, and active thing. It doesn't even ask what the good works are. It just goes out and does them naturally. That's what faith does. That's what the new creation does. Right. That's what we do as we are made new in Christ. Um, and so there's no possibility of someone having faith you know, being regenerated and then not doing good works. Yeah, so, yeah, that's like saying you know you believe in a you, you know that there's a such thing as lions that don't roar. You know, you know it's or you know fish that don't swim. I mean, who ever heard of such a thing? You know, there's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't do good works. I mean, that animal doesn't exist. You know. 
Well, exactly, exactly. It, it's just it's the nature of the new creature to do good works, and so if we are renewed, regenerated people, we are going to do good works. Right. Uh, and so it's it's not optional in that sense, and it's not like. You know, some people say, well, you know, Lutherans just say that, but they just ignore them practically. We don't ever talk about them. And that might be the case with, with certain parts of the Lutheran Church. But, I mean, you know, Pieper talks about this. He says, yeah, Pieper, uh, you know, pastors should encourage their people to do good works. Right. So if I, if I am preaching on a passage and it says something about doing good works, I'm not going to skip over it and pretend it's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm going to say it, you know, this, hey, this is how we love and serve our neighbor. This is the guidance that God has given us. And how we can live out our, our lives. Um, yeah, and and I would even add to this. You know, you know, if, if people might be shocked to hear that Francis Pieper, in his uh, Lutheran dogmatics, makes it very clear that uh, the thing we should be shooting for as Christians on a daily basis is perfection. That we should be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And so the standard we're shooting for in our good works is perfection. And this is kind of Rosebro's uh, paraphrase of Peeper, you know, uh, is that we can do this joyfully. And at the end of the day, when we haven't achieved perfection, we can pray, forgive us our trespasses as, as you know, as you as we forgive those who trespass against us and go to bed in the mo- at night and you know have a perfectly clean conscience and wake up in the morning and go for it again it's kind of like you know strive for perfection fail rinse wash repeat you know exactly i think i think that's a really good point uh, to bring up because people always say you know oh the lutheran perspective they don't even strive to do good work they don't care but yeah peeper does say that in the lutheran tradition generally they've actually said that they've said yeah, you know, what kind of thing are we striving for? And it is perfection. That's exactly what we're striving for. But yeah. we're going to fail every day. But that doesn't mean we don't strive for it. But I, I think the difference is, in the what different ways that people treat this, is, you know, one perspective says, I have been set free from the gospel. Uh, you know, my account with God has been settled. Um, uh, you know, I am loved unconditionally. I, I am declared righteous in Christ. All of this kind of stuff. And then you say, now I have the freedom to go try and fulfill God's will for my life. And you can do that. You can strive for perfection, but you're doing it joyfully because you're not doing it thinking, oh, I got to make sure I did, I did good enough today. I've got to do better than yesterday. You're not thinking, oh, man, I, I got to make sure that I'm really saved and I have to do good enough. I have to just be beating my flesh and be miserable and, and try to, you know, cut off all of the pleasures of this life so I can, so I can be the best Christian I can be. I mean, it's, it's not that kind of thinking. Nope. Uh, and, and that's what... And that's what really distinguishes, uh, you know, I think Luther's approach from the more strict uh, Puritan approach that you find in, in Jones's book. Right. And I find in my own life that progress in this is just not possible without my eyes focused on Jesus and not me. And 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 what I mean by that is is I keep coming back to Jesus's new commandment, you know, in John 13, a new commandment I give you. As I have loved you, love one another. That has got to be the most gospel-centric command I've ever heard anywhere in the Bible. Because as I sit there and think about, okay, how am I going to fulfill this? Well, first and foremost, as I have loved you, how has Jesus loved me? And then it comes back to me over and over again. Look at what Jesus has done for me. This past Sunday, my sins were absolved. You know, there at the Lord's Supper, I heard again the forgiveness of my sins as I was taking the Lord's Supper. Um, You know, I can think back to my baptism where, you know, all those promises of the forgiveness of sins are in my baptism. And then in in the sermons that I hear over and over again where my pastor keeps telling me how much Jesus has done 
done for me, how he's forgiven me, how he's suffered in my place on the cross, how he's instructed me and how his burden is light. And he says, come to me, all you who are heavy, you know, weary and heavy laden. And I think there, and I, th- the more I understand and comprehend just how radical Christ's love is to me and unworthy and completely uh, horrible sinner, the more I sit there and go, how could I not go and share that love with other people? So, and love, according to Paul, is the fulfilling of the law. And so with the gospel front and center, now I have something to look at and see what it looks like to actually begin to make progress in obeying these commands because it's not just thou shalt not steal. It's what Luther talks about in the small catechism of protecting my neighbor and making sure that his possessions aren't being taken by other people by, you know, by a show of, of being in the right and things like that. It, it takes on rather than a negative dimension, something positive that I can actually do. And there's like no limits to how I can love somebody. Uh, you're exactly right. Uh, that's a uh, that's a great explanation of of Christian sanctification. And I, I think, you know, one of the criticisms that you find with with this type of view of of the law and law and gospel distinction is people say, how can you pray Psalm 119? How can you read Psalm 119? You know, because in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, "How I love your law" and all this kind of stuff, and, and he's rejoicing in the law, thanking God for the law. And I would throw that question back on them uh, because. I spent some time in in the Reformed world, and I spent some time under preaching that was a very, you know, the puritanical kind of preaching that was very moralistic, and the preaching was, you know, you have to constantly look at yourself to see if your your works are are really good enough, and you have to beat your flesh constantly. It's just this daily, continual battle where you're kind of expected to be kind of miserable in your sin and really trying as hard as you can. Uh, From that perspective... I could not read Psalm 119 and say, I thank God for the law. Right. But I can't because it's just this horrible struggle. But now, having understanding justification and putting the law in this context of serving my neighbor, knowing that I am set free completely, knowing that, that when I screw up, when I mess up, according to God's law, there's going to be forgiveness for me. Now I actually can rejoice in it. Now I can actually pray Psalm 119 and say, yeah, God, I thank you for, for your law because you've given me instruction. This is how I'm supposed to live my life. This is how I'm supposed to love and serve my neighbor. Um, and I think that's really the more biblical way to look at the law. And so the, the question I don't think is, is there a third use of the law? Are there good works? Is there sanctification? But how do you explain those things? What context are those things put in? Yep, I agree. I, and it makes all the difference in the world. If you're, if you're looking at all of this through the gospel, all of a sudden these things aren't burdensome. You're, you're looking at them only through the law and what I've got to do and there's not eyes focused on Christ. You, good, you might as well be Sisyphus pushing, pushing that rock up the, up the hill. No, exactly. And, and that's, you know, a lot of this debate goes back to that passage in, in 1 John that was being debated over, you know, are, are God's commandments burdensome, that, that phrase, cause, because John says they're not burdensome. And I think it's precisely because Christ has fulfilled them yeah. that we are completely forgiven in him that now they're not burdensome. Yeah, and not only that, I mean, all of the threatenings of, of the law have been silenced by Christ. I mean, he's... He's literally drank to the dregs the you know, full cup of the fury and the wrath of God for our sins. So the law literally is, is you know, it's gone from being a roaring lion to a toothless pussycat. It, 
you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. you don't scare me anymore. You know, it's like, and I can kind of, you're kind of cute now, you know? <laughs> right. Anyway, I, I, I think we've kind of beat this horse uh, to death, but, you know, I, I think it was important to, uh, you know, on today's episode to kind of circle back, go to ground zero, and uh, and take a look at this, at, you know, the book that started uh, what I think is a, a lot of the controversy regarding uh, regarding telling uh, telling Chavidian. Let me ask you just another question. Question straight up. After reading uh, Mark Jones's book, um, do you think that uh, he may uh, have committed the opposite error of antinomianism and found himself in a legalistic ditch? I think he absolutely did. I, I think it's clear reading the book, and you know there there are certain errors. Some of the things he critiques there are right. Um, not everything that he critiques is wrong. Um, and, and I'm not talking about the things he critiques about Tullian, but some of the things he critiques in general, um, like some of the things that were being fought against from Burgess and, and guys like that, right. because it was real antinomianism. Um, but he does exactly what you're saying, is he says, well, this is an error, and then he kind of just totally goes to the other extreme, uh, to the point where this is something that, that you said, that he can't really bring up the gospel without adding but at the end. Right. Uh, and so there's just such a fear of antinomianism, and that, that that kind of overtakes him that he then goes to the other extreme, where you can't even preach the free message of the gospel without then qualifying it quickly just to make sure they know that you know you, you can't go on and sin. Yeah, I mean, seriously. I mean, that's not gospel preaching. I mean, you know, Christ forgives you, but, 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 but don't, don't think that that means you can go and fornal caboodalate, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, out of all the years I've been a Lutheran, I've never been absolved of my sins and have the pastor go around, but don't think that that means, you, you know, it's like, I, I, it's, do they not understand just by the very act that I'm, I'm asking for forgiveness for my sins that I actually understand that I don't want to be doing these things and I need to be forgiven by God because they're wrong. I, when you say that Christ has forgiven me, you don't need to put the caveat, but don't go and do it anymore. You know? <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. Aye, 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 aye. So anyway, thank you for your time, Pastor Cooper. Good conversation. And, uh, and uh, by the way, you're, you're one of our uh, headline speakers at the Pirate Christian Radio Conference this, uh, this summer. And, uh, and so uh, t- tell us a little bit about what you're going to be talking about at the Pirate Christian Radio Conference. I'm actually going to be talking about a lot, a lot of the issues we're talking about right now. Um, I- I'm talking about, about fruit checking specifically is what we're going to be discussing and and uh, the, the danger of judging your salvation based on your good works, constantly looking at yourself, uh, trying to judge if you're saved or if you're not, if you're really regenerated, if you have some kind of false faith or true faith or whatever else. Uh, but instead of that, we need to look to the objective, uh, the objective work of Christ, especially as it comes to us through, through God's Word and, and His sacraments. Excellent. And the, uh, the Pirate Christian Radio Conference is August 14th and 15th in Clinton, Iowa. Details on uh, how to register are at uh, pcrconference.com. Uh, Pastor Jordan, look forward to, uh, to... Well, we'll see each other in June at the ALC uh, convention, uh, but also looking forward to seeing you in August in, uh, in Clinton, Iowa. All right, I'm looking forward to it, too. All right, thank you, Pastor Cooper. Thank you. 
So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, a Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon to end off the week. Good one. On uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where Jones says, if you ain't preached, accused of antinomianism, probably ain't preaching the gospel right. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Hour number two, well into it here at Fighting for the Faith. Going to end off the week with a good sermon, a classic, if you would. Many people refer to this sermon and a quote from it from time to time. The gist of which is that if uh, you're not accused of being an antinomian, you're probably not preaching the gospel correctly. All right, here we go. The 
Cut the Bad, the Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust. You can find it at mljtrust.org. Martin Lloyd-Jones presiding. We'll be listening to his sermon on the Epistle of Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. This is his introductory sermon, so you'll notice in the front half of this sermon, there's a lot of introductory data. And don't think for a second this is an important information. It really is important information because you got to rightly understand how the letter itself is put together so that you can understand how the different parts work. And so uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones takes the time to flesh all that out before he starts doing his exegesis. And I think you'll find that his exegesis is rather not only good, rather... Um, how shall we say, timely for uh, what's happening today. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Martin Lloyd-Jones. As we resume these studies in the Epistle to the Romans, we come this evening to chapter 6, and I'm going to read again the first two verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now we come to this most important section in the epistle to the Romans. This portion that starts with this sixth chapter. I suppose it is the best known section in the entire epistle, the one that is most frequently spoken about, and uh, I'm afraid it is true to add, the one that is most frequently misunderstood and misinterpreted. It is, as I say, uh, a familiar one, because it is so often the section that is dealt with and quoted and expounded in connection with teaching concerning sanctification and holiness. It is generally regarded as the kind of classical passage and section and statement in the whole of the New Testament on that particular theme. And yet, I shall try to show you that it is just there that it seems to me at any rate that this whole section has been so frequently misinterpreted and misunderstood. You are familiar with the way people divide it up mechanically and they say chapters 1 to 5, justification. Chapter 6, 7, 8, sanctification. 9, 10, and 11, the question of the Jews and of the last and ultimate things. 12 to 16, practical exhortations and applications. Well now, of course, that, that sounds very interesting and very attractive and it seems to make it very simple. But actually, uh, it will be my endeavor to show you that it is quite wrong. And quite wrong because it is uh, so utterly mechanical and because it imposes upon the epistle something which the epistle itself does not say. There is a tendency uh, on the part of some of us to like to have things classified like this very conveniently Under headings, we feel it makes it much simpler, as we say. But always in the end, it makes it much more complicated. But in any case, it should be an invariable rule in any interpretation of Scripture 
that we should be guided by the words before us. Very well. I say all that in order that we may look together, first of all, at this section in general, before we come down to a detailed analysis and exposition. Now, I would start with this proposition, that obviously here we are not starting with a new section in a fundamental sense of that word. When I say a new section in the fundamental sense of that word, I mean this, that the apostle has finished with a subject at the end of chapter 5 and now takes up something entirely new. Now that would be to start a new section in a fundamental sense of the term. But I'm arguing that the apostle is not doing that here and that where this glib and easy classification and subdivision of the epistle goes so wrong is that it will persist in starting a new section here and saying so far he's dealt with justification, now he takes up the theme of sanctification. Some put it here at chapter 6 verse 1, others put it at uh, chapter 5 in verse 12 where they say he starts with the theme of sanctification. Well, when we were dealing with that verse, I tried to indicate then that I saw no suggestion at all that he was beginning to deal with sanctification there. And I say much the same thing this evening about this first verse of the sixth chapter. Here we have not got an entirely new section. On what grounds do I say that? Well, the very words that we have before us. What shall we say then? About what? What shall we say then about what he's just been saying? So he hasn't finished with what he's just been saying. He's going on with it. What he's going to say now is something that arises directly and obviously from what he has already been saying. So that the very words of the first verse of this sixth chapter seem to me to make it quite wrong to say that here he takes up an entirely new subject and goes on to something that he hasn't been dealing with at all before. Obviously, therefore, we are looking at something which has a very direct and immediate connection with the previous chapter. It arises directly from it. Well, what is that? Well, we must therefore remind ourselves at this point of the whole theme of chapter 5. What was the apostle telling us there? It's no use going on to this if we've forgotten what the apostle has been saying in chapter 5. Let us never forget that as Paul wrote this epistle, it was not divided up like this into chapters. That was only done about the 16th century. And sometimes it isn't always done in a very accurate manner, but it was done for the convenience of readers. But the apostle did not say chapter 6. It was a continuous letter. Well, now then, what was his theme in chapter 5? Well, we've endeavored to indicate that the theme, the great theme of chapter 5, is the theme of assurance and certainty of salvation. Our argument was that having worked out his great doctrine of justification by faith only in the first four chapters and having argued with the various arguments that were brought up against it, the apostle now begins to deduce the things that result from justification. Therefore, being, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, we have our access into this 
grace wherein we stand by faith and we rejoice in hope for the glory of God. Now there's the theme of the whole of chapter 5. What he's really saying is this, that our justification guarantees our final redemption in the fullest sense. That if a man is justified by faith, well then he can be happy about his ultimate salvation. If you're justified, well, you can be happy that you're going to be sanctified and glorified. It's all in this thing. If we are justified by faith, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Or as you remember, we have indicated so often you get it in the 8th chapter. You remember how he makes a leap uh, from justification again to glorification in verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate them, he also called, and whom he called them, he also justified, and whom he justified them, he also glorified. Now, that's the apostles' theme and argument in chapter 5. That if we are justified, well, then we are in a position when we know that the whole of redemption is going to be ours. And he wants these people to realize that. So he works it out, how nothing can come between them and this. Tribulations can't do it. Nothing can do it. Indeed, they all add to it. And then he says, we got an absolute proof of it in this, that if God gave his son to die for us when we were enemies, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved in his life. And that in turn, you remember, brought us on to that wonderful section from verse 12 to the end of the chapter in chapter 5 where he introduces this endless, most wonderful of all themes, our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We were joined to Adam. We are now joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says your salvation is as certain as that. You are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, all that belongs to him will become yours, even as all that belong to Adam has already become yours. Because of that one sin of Adam, you have reaped the, the appalling consequences. Ah, yes. But because of this one act of the Son of God, you're going to reap all the benefits of salvation. And he, he remember, he worked it up to that tremendous climax at the end. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. It's all right, says the apostle. In Christ you're under the reign of grace, and nothing can frustrate it. You're guaranteed, you're certain. Now that's his whole point, that this wonderful thing called justification is an initial move which leads to all the others and guarantees them all. He deduces them all from justification. And that is the theme which I say he works up to this tremendous climax in the, at the end of chapter 5. Not that he was going to end there because he hasn't finished with it. He wants to go on and to show still further how this certainty of our glorification is established by our justification. And indeed, he does that in chapter 8. But for the moment, he pauses. And he pulls himself up. 
He hasn't finished, I say, with the great theme of chapter 5. He wants to go on with it, but he feels it's necessary that he should stop for a moment and turn aside to deal with a tremendously important question. Now then, we're beginning to see the connection of these chapters 6 and 7. Because there at the end of chapter 5, he has made a tremendous statement. He has said the law came in that the offense might abound. But, he says, though the offense did abound, grace did much more abound. And then this other statement that the thing is as certain as this, that we are under the power and the dominion and the reign of grace. And that nothing can therefore prevent our final salvation. But here he anticipates a difficulty. And he wants to make his meaning absolutely plain and clear. He has just said something that can be easily misunderstood. Indeed, there were many at that time who were misunderstanding it. And especially the Jews. And not only the unbelieving Jews. But many Jews that had been converted and become Christian were in difficulties about this. And the apostle, as always, anxious to help and to make things plain and clear, and to avoid false deductions being drawn from his teaching, takes up this question immediately in order to make it perfectly plain once and forever. In other words, these gigantic statements made in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5 raise two special problems at once. And here they are. They're both connected with this question of the law. The first difficulty is this. Will not this sweeping statement about grace and the apparent setting aside of the law Will not that encourage people to sin and to sin more even than they did before? Or if you like, I can introduce the technical term. Isn't this kind of teaching likely to lead to what is called antinomianism? To a kind of lawlessness? Are not people likely to say, well, very well, if you tell me that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Doesn't it follow that the more I sin, the more I'll know of the grace of God. Therefore, in a sense, the more I sin, the happier I'll be, and the more I'll understand these matters. It doesn't matter what I do. Isn't it going to encourage people to sin? That arises in the minds of people immediately. But then there is a second question. If the apostle speaks like this about the law, well then, was the law altogether useless and valueless? Why did God ever give the law to the children of Israel? What was it meant to do? What was its place and its function in God's great plan and scheme of redemption? Now, a thinking, intelligent Jew, whether unconverted or converted, would be very liable indeed to think along those two lines as he listens to this climax at the end of chapter 5. So the apostle at once pauses in his tremendous argument about assurance and about the finality of justification to deal with these two possible difficulties. And that is exactly what he does in chapters 6 and 7. 
If you like, you can say, therefore, that chapters 6 and 7 are a kind of parenthesis which, come between, which comes between chapter 5 and chapter 8. There is a continuous theme in chapter 5 and 8. 8, you remember, starts with these words. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now that's linking us up with the end of chapter 5, not with the end of chapter 7. Chapter 8 begins where chapter 5 leaves off. Chapter 6 and 7 come in between. They're not a digression. They're a kind of parenthesis, an interruption of the main argument in order to clear up subsidiary difficulties that have arisen in connection with particular statements. Very well. Chapter 6 deals with that first question as to whether this sort of teaching isn't going to lead to antinomianism, as to whether this tremendous statement about grace much more abounding isn't going to incite people to loose living and to sin. Now the business of chapter 6 is to deal with that difficulty. Then chapter 7 deals with the second matter, namely, it is an exposition and an explanation of the whole place and function and purpose of the law in God's economy of redemption. And so, after he's dealt with the two questions, he's now in a position to take up his great theme again of the finality of justification, and he does so, as I say, at the beginning of chapter 8. Well, now you see why I say that it is entirely wrong to think that a new major section begins at verse 1, chapter 6. That is not the case at all. And it is to do violence to the Apostle's argument to suggest that he does so. In other words, I entirely reject the notion that what is happening in chapters 6 and 7 is that the Apostle deals only with the question of the method of sanctification. Now, you're familiar with that teaching, aren't you? How he is said to open it out in chapter 6, and then he begins in chapter 7 to tell us what his experience used to be when he was a defeated Christian. And then how you suddenly turn over from chapter 7 to chapter 8 and suddenly becomes a victorious Christian. I am simply suggesting that there is no evidence for that kind of division whatsoever. And that it is just to do violence to the apostles' teaching to regard it in that way. Chapter 6 and 7 are a parenthesis dealing with two special difficulties in connection with what he's been saying in chapter 5 and what he'll again take up in chapter 8. The very words, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of necessity. These words compel us, I say, of necessity to realize that here we are having an explanation of, an exposition of, a further elaboration of what he has been saying, especially in the last two verses of chapter 5. Very well. There is a broad view of chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, and especially of chapters 6 and 7. But come, let us look a little more closely. In chapter 6, I say, the apostle is dealing with the danger of antinomianism. The danger which has so often arisen in the history of the church. 
of people saying, oh, this is a wonderful doctrine, this doctrine of salvation. It's the free gift, the free grace of God. It really means, you see, that it doesn't matter what you do at all, you're saved all right. And people have misused it in that way. For the reasons that the apostle will explain to us. Very well, now, that's what he deals with in chapter 6. But here again, this chapter, we can subdivide into two sections. And you must have noticed the obvious division, because you must have noticed that in verse 15, he virtually repeats what he says in verse 1. Listen, in verse 1 you have, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers by saying, God forbid. In verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid again. Obviously, the division therefore is this. The first section, verses 1 to 14. The second section, verses 15 to 23. Now then, what does he deal with in these two sections? In the first section, verses 1 to 14, he deals with this whole question of the danger of antinomianism in a more or less purely doctrinal manner. And it is indeed very wonderful doctrine. It is an elaboration of the doctrine of our union with Christ, which is already introduced in chapter 5. That's what he's doing. And he does it in these first 14 verses. It's almost pure doctrine, with an occasional exhortation thrown in, especially when you come uh, to verse 12, 13, and 14. And then the second section from verse 15 to the end is a more practical one, a more experimental one. Having shown the folly of this wrong deduction that leads to antinomianism in a doctrinal manner, he now shows its utter folly and unreasonableness in a more purely direct and experimental and practical manner. But in both, you see, he is showing the utter absurdity of saying, in the light of your teaching, let us therefore sin. But he chooses to do it in these two particular ways. Well, now then, there we've taken a comprehensive and a very general view of the argument of this chapter 6 and chapter 7 with which we are going to deal. And that therefore enables us to come now to begin to look at uh, section 1. Here again we can subdivide it in this way. Verses 1 and 2 are simply the raising of the question and the giving of a general answer. Then verses 3 to 11 he gives a more detailed answer and exposition of the doctrine of our union with Christ. And then in verses 12, 13, and 14, he makes a general appeal to us in view of all this and in the light of all this. Well, now, there's our rough classification. And that enables us to come to a detailed exposition. Now, I've spent all this time in looking at it in general in this way because, as we've so often seen together before, 
If we are not clear about the general trend or the general thrust of the argument, we are inevitably likely to go wrong in the detailed exposition of the particular statements. It is always a good thing in interpreting scripture to have the whole in your mind before you come to the parts. And we must never so interpret the parts that they do not correspond to our conception of the whole. Therefore, we have started like this with the whole. But having done that, come back to verses 1 and 2. Now, in verse 1, he puts up and states the question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The question is quite simple. I'm not going to weary you with a matter that is uh, discussed and debated uh, by the commentators as to whether this is a purely rhetorical question or whether there was some objector who had actually said this, we don't know. It's a very good way of dealing with difficulties. A wise teacher always anticipates difficulties. And the apostle was a very wise and a very experienced teacher. He knew and he'd already experienced in his ministry that people would draw wrong deductions from what he said, well, therefore he anticipates them. And it may well be that he just puts up this rhetorical question in order to deal with a difficulty that might arise in people's minds. But as I say, it may equally be the case that there were people who were falling to this error in Rome. It is certainly the case that many had done so in various places in the early church. However, here is the question. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If it is true that where sin abounded, grace hath much more abounded, well then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now then, let's look at this question. And first of all, let me make a comment. And to me, this is a very important and a very vital comment. True preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. Am I making that plain? I say that there is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really comes to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it doesn't matter at all what you do, and you can go on sinning as much as you like, it will redound all the more to the glories of grace. Now that, I say, is a very good test of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation doesn't expose it to that misunderstanding. Well, then it isn't the gospel. Let me show you what I mean. If a man preaches justification by works, nobody had ever raised this question. If a man's preaching is now, you people, if you want to be Christians and if you want to go to heaven, you must stop committing sins, you must take up good works, and if you do so regularly and constantly and don't fail and keep on at it, you will make yourselves Christians and you will reconcile yourselves to God and you'll go to heaven. 
Now, a man who preaches that would never be liable to this misunderstanding. Obviously not. Nobody'd say to such a man, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because the man's whole preaching is just this, that if you go on sinning, you're going to be damned. If you stop sinning, you'll save yourselves. So that misunderstanding could never come in. And so you can apply it to any other type or kind of preaching. If you suggest that you're saved by the church or by sacraments and so on and so forth, this kind of argument doesn't arise. This particular misunderstanding can only arise when the doctrine of justification by faith only is being presented. Or, if you like to put it in other words, you remember how the Apostle has put it in chapter 4 where he says this, that God justifieth the ungodly. It's the fifth verse of the fourth chapter. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now it's when a man says a thing like that, that the misunderstanding is liable to arise. Or when a man says a thing like this, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It's when a man says things like that that this misunderstanding tends to come in. So you see, this is a very good test of one's preaching. There is a sense in which the doctrine of justification by faith only is a very dangerous doctrine. Dangerous, I mean, in the sense that it can be misunderstood. It exposes a man to this particular charge. People will say, listening to it, ah, oh, there's a man who doesn't encourage us to live a good life. He seems to say there's no value in our works, that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Therefore, what he's saying is, it doesn't matter what you do. Sin as much as you... You see, he can easily misunderstand it. There is something apparently dangerous about the message of justification by faith only, or that salvation is entirely of grace. And therefore I say that if our preaching doesn't expose us to that charge and to that misunderstanding, it is because we are not really preaching the gospel. Nobody has ever brought this charge against the Church of Rome, but it was brought against Martin Luther. That was exactly what the Church of Rome said about the preaching of Martin Luther. Ah, they said, this man, this man who was a priest, he's changed all this doctrine in order that he can justify his own marriage and his own lust and so on. This man, they said, is an antinomian. This is heresy, they said. This is terribly dangerous. He's going to lead to lawlessness. That's the very charge they brought against him. It was the charge brought against Whitfield and Wesley 200 years ago. It is the charge that formal, dead Christianity, if there is such a thing, formal church life has always brought against this startling, staggering message that God justifies the ungodly and that we are saved not by anything that we do, but in spite of it, entirely and only by the grace of God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's my comment. It's a very important comment for preachers. And I would say to any preacher here tonight, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in that way, 
well then you'd better examine your sermons again and you'd better make sure that you really are preaching the salvation that is offered in the New Testament to the ungodly to the sinner to those who are dead in trespasses and sins to those who are enemies there is this kind of dangerous element about the true presentation of the doctrine of salvation well very well then there is my comment and you see how thus the question arises but now let us look at the answer which he gives in verse 2 God forbid he says now we've already come across that expression in the third chapter and we saw there, as we must see here, that this isn't a, a strictly literal, accurate translation. The apostle didn't use the word God at all, but these authorized translators wanted to bring out the thing very strongly, so they said, God forbid. But what it really means is, by no means, let it not be. It is unthinkable. It should never even be suggested. That's what he is really uh, conveying. It's a very strong term, and in a sense, these people are, were right in translating it as God forbid. The thing is unthinkable. It shouldn't even be mentioned. It shouldn't be hinted at. The thing's an utter impossibility. God forbid. Well, why does he put it as strongly as that? Well, clearly for this reason. That to put that question or to raise that matter at all simply shows a complete failure to understand everything that he's been saying about justification by faith only. If a man raises this question, it just means that so far he has not grasped what the apostle has been saying in chapters 1 to 5. That's why it's unthinkable. That's why it shouldn't be mentioned for a moment. He's not only misunderstood justification. He has entirely misunderstood the doctrine of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. If he'd understood that, he'd never raise a point like this. Or, if you like, you can put it like this. If a man says, now then, if you say to me that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, shall we therefore continue in sin that grace may abound? What does he say? He is saying this, that he has not understood at all the whole meaning and purpose of grace. And what is that? Well, the apostle, we would have thought, had put it quite plainly in the last verse of chapter 5, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. What is the business of grace? Is it to allow us to continue in sin? No. It is to deliver us from the reign of sin. To deliver us from the reign of sin and to put us under the reign of grace. So when a man says, shall we therefore continue in sin that grace may abound, he's just showing that he hasn't understood at all either the tyranny or the reign of sin or the whole object and purpose of grace and its marvelous reign and realm and rule over those who are saved. Or to put it positively, a man who really understands justification and its meaning and its purpose will never think like that and he'll never speak like that. 
But I want to put it even more strongly than that. A man who is justified and who is under the reign of grace cannot think like this. Still less can he act like that. Now then, that's exactly the thing that the apostle proceeds to say. God forbid, he says. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now then, here we are face to face with one of the great statements of this epistle. It's one of the most important statements. In some shape or form, we shall find that the apostle goes on repeating this one statement. Here it is in verse 2. We shall get it again in verse 6. We get it in verse 7. We get it in verse 8. We get it in verse 10. And in a sense, we get it even in the exhortation of verse 11. Therefore, nothing is more important for us than to understand exactly the meaning of this statement. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. Now then, here we are at the commencement of our detailed exposition, more or less verse by verse. But that is the context, that is the setting. That is the way we've got to approach it all. And all I want to do before I stop this evening is this, is just to get clear in our minds the meaning of the phrase. Unfortunately, the authorized version here has a bad translation. I've been reading it. How shall we that are dead to sin? Now that's a very poor translation. It should be this. How shall we that died to sin? That's what you've got in your more modern translations. And here they're undoubtedly right. The apostle here has used the aorist tense. And the aorist means this. It is something that has happened once and forever. It is a reference to a definite fact that belongs to the past. He isn't referring to something that is true now of us, our dead to sin. He says, how shall we that die to sin? It is something that has happened once and forever, some time or other, in the past history of those who are believers. We die to sin. Now, it doesn't mean, therefore, are dead to sin, and it doesn't mean have died to sin. If we translated it, how shall we that have died to sin, again, it might appear to be something which was a process which went over a period of time, but now we can say, well, at last we have finished this process and we have died to sin. He doesn't say that. He is referring to one act, to one event, to something that has happened at one unique point in our history and in our story. How shall we that died to sin? It is this air is tense. And we shall have to be careful to observe when we come to those other verses, 6, 7, 8, 10, and 11, that he uses the exact same tense in all those cases also. Very well. It remains for us now to consider 
the meaning of the term. But I'm not going to do so this evening. I imagine that my general review of the passages may have been somewhat uh, trying and difficult for you. But it was absolutely essential, as I trust that I have demonstrated, that we should be clear about the trend and the thrust and the object of the whole argument. Now, as we come to deal with the meaning of this key phrase, we shall see how vital it was to bear this context in mind. Here is something, he says, that has happened to you once and forever, and I'll anticipate to this extent, I'll tell you when it happened. This is something that happened when we ceased to be in Adam and when we began to be in Christ. But it's too big a thing to rush at the end of a service such as this. So I leave it at that particular point. Here then in verses 1 and 2, the apostle is putting up this possible misunderstanding in terms of antinomianism and he gives his general answer. And then having given it in general, he will take it up in verse 3 and he'll go through it in detail in order to show us the utter absurdity of deducing from the glorious doctrine of justification and salvation by grace only that it means that it doesn't matter how we live as Christians that in a sense the more we sin the more does it redound to the glory of the reign of grace. Very well, let's leave it at that point for this evening and God willing take up the exact meaning of the phrase that we died to sin next Friday evening. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank thee more than ever for thy word. For it has reminded us together this evening of the way in which, because of sin and because of our adversary the devil, we can so easily misunderstand and misinterpret. O God, we thank thee for thy loving forethought for us that thou hast caused thy servants to raise the difficulties and the problems and the misunderstandings and to deal with them and expose them and expound them and to correct them and to give us a clear understanding of the truth. O Lord, we would humbly praise thy name that thou dost condescend to our weakness and ignorance and frailty in this particular way and manner in order that we might be guarded and protected against these grievous errors and that we might be built up in our most holy faith. O oh Lord, receive our humble praise and continue, we beseech thee, in thy grace and in thy mercy to lead us and to guide us and to direct us. We ask it in the name of thy dear Son, our blessed Lord and Saviour. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night and evermore. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. 
You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till Tuesday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>